Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. Before we get started, I wanted to share some good news. Pedagogue won the 2019 Computers and Composition Michelle Kendrick Outstanding Digital Production Scholarship Award, and I am incredibly thankful and honored. I shared a cheesy story on Twitter. If you don't follow us, our handle is at underscore pedagogue underscore. That's where we post news updates and we do book giveaways. So be sure to click that follow button so you can stay connected. Anyway, on the last day of kindergarten, my teacher asked me what I learned that year. And I told her to make friends. The other kids laughed, but I was serious. Somewhat surprised, she said, well, Shane, what do you want to learn or do in first grade? And I said, to make more friends. I've always been that kind of person, drawn to community and people, stories, relationships, and really that was one of the things that led me to pedagogue. I could sit and listen and talk with people. And this has always been a podcast about other people, about facilitating conversations across institutions and positions. So all of that to say, this award to me is about you. So thank you. Thanks for, this is going to sound cheesy again, for being my friend and making this thing possible. Now to the episode. In this episode, I talk with Aris de Ruiz, about Chicanx studies and ethnic studies, examining histories and embracing diversity and inclusivity, decolonial theory and anti-racist practices. Dr. Aris de Ruiz is a continuing lecturer for the UC Merced Merit Writing Program and a lecturer with the Sonoma State University Chicano Latino Studies Program. Her current publications are her monograph, Reclaiming Composition for Chicanos, Chicanas, and Other Ethnic Minorities, A Critical History and Pedagogy, and a co-edited collection, Decolonizing Rhetoric and Composition Studies, New Latinx Keywords for Theory and Pedagogy, in which she also contributed a chapter on the keyword race. She's also written several articles and chapters for edited collections. Her 2017 co-authored article deals with race and WPA history, and was published in the CWPA Journal and received the 2019 Kenneth Bruffy Award. This work is also currently contracted with Parlor Press for a forthcoming book. She has recently launched a podcast, which is a collaboration between Spark Writing and Working for Change Series and Scholars in Rhetoric and Writing in an effort to create resilient strategies. Aris, thank you so much for joining us. I want to start by talking more broadly before we get into decolonial theory and anti-racist practices about your pedagogy, specifically how Chicanx studies and ethnic studies informs your teaching. My, when I look at my pedagogical practice, it's definitely grounded within the studies that I've done, within my research, within a certain theoretical framework. And so if you're familiar with my first monograph, um, it really was a bridge from thinking about like how we would teach linguistic and culturally minoritized students within the classroom 
to looking at a specific pedagogical approach that would actually be beneficial not only for racial minorities, but also for white students and thinking about um, the ways that uh, a critical pedagogical approach can get them to see the different experiences of different peoples within the United States. Um, and then also thinking about how that might build on my current work with decolonial practice and thinking about how to decolonize the classroom really also relates to that. So I try, I try to think of my pedagogical approach as being a very organic outgrowth of the things that I research and the things that I care about. Um, and then so obviously being from California, and specifically within the Central Valley, and there's a large, you know, Latino, Latinx population here. The reason why I really, really value the knowledge offered by Chicanx Studies and Ethnic Studies courses is because it's very much grounded within the community and communities in which I work um, are Hispanic-serving institutions. Um, however, you know, my pedagogical approach tries to take into account everyone. Um, so a little bit more specific to your question about how that finds its way within my pedagogical practice. Well, I think, first of all, we have to think about, you know, the level of which um, we're teaching. And so I teach first year composition. Um, I, th I teach both renditions of that, the basic writing section, but also the research oriented section. And then I teach uh, upper level classes as well. And in those classes, we, you know, concentrate a little bit more on genre, but I definitely make make sure to bring in the ethnic studies approach. So the most common and probably the uh, most repeated rendition of how I envision my pedagogical approach to be, especially within first year composition, um, really relies on bringing in that communal approach, which means looking at the histories of communities and then for the students to be able to learn how they situate themselves within those histories, especially when those histories have not been taught in the K through 12 institutions. And so when we're thinking about ethnic studies and the fight for ethnic studies, the reason why I have an ethnic studies focus, and I think that it's very important in this area is because the students are not exposed to it unless they actually go to college. And many of them, it's their first actual encounter with some of the histories that come into our, our, our pedagogy through the readings. Um, so they're not familiar with these histories and many of those histories are tied to their own identities. And so, again, going back to the philosophy of ethnic studies and Chicanx studies is very much centered upon self-empowerment, learning about their own critical histories, that it does lead to a form of self-empowerment. And not to mention through all of this, where I want to end up here, is that we're teaching writing. And so um, we have this goal and this skill to teach. And so what are we going to utilize as the material, as their approach or goal of that particular pedagogical approach? And how is that going to be expressed through their writing and the different artifacts of writing that they have throughout, um, you know, any given term. Um, I definitely believe in the power of writing too, to be able to write oneself out of an oppressive circumstance or situation. And that's also a very much strongly rooted within ethnic studies and uh, Chicanx studies. So you're talking about using writing to explore histories, including oppressive histories. And you're talking about framing teaching writing as an opportunity to value multiculturalism and embrace diversity and inclusivity. Can you talk more about the classroom practices you use and how you've seen your students' literacy grow through this approach to teaching writing? You know, there are various renditions of how this could take place in any given classroom or term. The one that I wrote about specifically as a case study within the book is one class that I taught actually at UC San Diego um, in 2006. 
And um, in that particular class, it became very important uh, for me to bring an essential question to the students there. It became really important for me, informed by my own critical study of history, to really examine the purpose and function of history. And it was really that kind of disciplinary question or that originary disciplinary question of what is the purpose of history? What is the function of history? And many times when we approach a writing class, we do have an essential question that we would like students to be able to consider. At the same time, we also have to consider the, the, the limited experiences of 18-year-olds, you know, who hadn't necessarily been exposed to a, maybe a metacognitive understanding of a purpose of history or purpose of a discipline. Um, and so I wanted to be able to get them to hone that particular skill just to think about why do we have to take history classes, you know, in K through 12 or much, uh, more more likely in high school, like we all have to have that historical requirement. And so I get them to try to reflect upon, you know, what is the whole purpose of history? What does it allow us to express and how does it influence our identity? Um, and so the whole first half of the class, and so I was on the quarter system at that time, so we're talking about nine or 10 weeks, so probably about the whole first um, four to five weeks of the classes, we're really delving into the purpose and function of history from various perspectives. Um, and so one of the things that the book touches on is, you know, critical race theory um, as a framework. And so if we're, if we're thinking about various different perspectives, we're going to consider the mainstream perspective, but we're also going to consider a critical race theory perspective. We're, we're considering alternative perspectives about the function of history. Um, you know, many of us are also taught in the Francophone tradition. So we are also, you know, privy to the fact that um, discourses create, you know, discipline. So if we're trying to get students to understand how that takes place, then we want to share some of that knowledge with them. So, you know, we asked about what if we consider it from a non-Western perspective? What if we even learn about what the word Eurocentric means? A lot of students don't even know what that word means. And then looking at how mainstream uh, scholars within the discipline of history define their own function. So these are the types of readings that I bring in um, from academic journals, Omi and Winant's racial formation to get them to understand the histories of colonialism. So, you know, it's a preview to why is colonialism even important in this particular uh, instance? What's the history, what's the relationship between history and colonialism? So that's the first half of the class. And then the second half of the class, I have to say for any teacher who's in, interested in in implementing this particular pedagogy in their first year composition course, the second half of the class can pretty much be any historical story that you choose that you'd want to focus on. Um, as long as it has, you know, that ability to be approached from like a Howard Zinn's um, perspective, you know, the people's history of the United States having various versions of a historical moment. Um, and so the way that I've seen their literacy grow is they just start to question things. Like they literally just start, you can see, you know, in their, in their eyes that you can see it in their work and how they're examining texts more critically. Um, you can see who's been exposed to this information and who hasn't, but you can see a growing greater literacy in the purpose and function of history, and you can see the growing great, uh, literacy in the area of that particular historical story. Your research also focuses on decolonial theory and program administration. Can you talk more about that? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that that's an interesting, also challenging question. It's not something I necessarily have um, thought of a whole lot, probably maybe the last two years. I've been, you know, thinking about the role of decolonial theory and administration because, you know, when we're thinking about administration, that's already, you know, a colonial construct um, in terms of just the way 
just all of the 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 ideas and concepts that it invokes and the practices that it, that you know administration invokes is to regulate um and so you know we have to think about how that type of regulation or approach to regulation centers on a top-down approach or on a more of a communal approach or a collaborative approach and the ways in which um, that program, you know, values the various voices of the of the educators that, that, that they're working alongside with and with, um, and you know, what do they value? What um, what is their program's assessment built upon? What is the verbiage or the the the, the text used within um, writing programs? course learning outcomes or program learning outcomes what kinds of skills are they valuing of their educators but also what kinds of skills are they trying to impart and put value on um, that we're teaching our students and how do those affect and apply to the students it's going to ask you to think about your own power position um, and it's going to ask you to think about how do you how do you uh, empathize with your potentially marginalized faculty or your uh, first generation, you know, minoritized students as well. How are you going to be able to train your faculty and give them the ability to be able to value a diversity of approach if you yourself don't value that? And, you know, and so all of those questions and those reflections are very decolonial in the sense that, you know, one of the actions I would say that really resonates with the decolonial practice is self reflection, thinking about oneself in the world, thinking about how others are a reflection of yourself, thinking about the ways that you act upon the world and the way that the world then responds to you is a very type of decolonial consciousness, I guess, state of mind. If one does not have that experience or foresight or just worldview, then they might have more of a top-down approach to where we're not considering who our educators are. We're not considering who our students are. We're just considering we need to have these course learning outcomes met. And these learning outcomes meant, oh, that's all we need to worry about, you know. And to me, that's a recipe for failure because, as we know, the demographics all over our country are changing, and um, and they're changing in a way that challenges that older structure that we could possibly call, you know, a symptom of colon settler colonial structures within the university. I want to talk about anti-racist practices specifically in relationship to writing programs and larger structures that guide our writing classes. Because we can talk about anti-racist pedagogies and practices, and that might come up here in your answer. But I'm thinking about how we have to change our systems. We have to change our practices. We have to change our structures. Of course, we can look at it through the lens of assessment, but that's just one lens Another lens is through administration and programs. So I want to set this question up by encouraging everyone to read your co-authored article, Race, Silence, and Writing Program Administration, a Qualitative Study of U.S. College Writing Programs, for more context and information. In it, you talk about the underrepresentation of teacher scholars of color in writing studies and the silencing of teacher scholars of color. What future direction can we take as teacher scholars to amplify anti-racist initiatives and aims and to intersect race and administration so that we can resist white supremacy? I don't know if I could speak so much to scholarship as I would actually just speak to practice because, you know, as I had mentioned earlier with my pedagogies, I really want it to be able to be implemented and for people to be able to take action um, based upon our research. So, um, and I really, you know, was 
shocked in some ways with some of the responses that we had in our interviews um, because I understand that there are writing programs who are really struggling with how to implement anti-racist measures in their programs. And so, um, so thank you for that question. So locally, um, I'd say for about the past two years, we've created a what is called a diversity initiatives committee that is headed by a diversity initiatives chair. And um, it's not necessarily only comprised of faculty of color, because as a matter of fact, we have very few faculty of color in our writing program, you know, comprised of who's ever interested in to, um, contributing to this particular conversation about diversity, about what it means, about the mission of the program. So it does call for a commitment to, uh, you know, creating structures, but also the commitment to being able to be open to revising current structures um, and to be able to understand the necessity of committing oneself, um, and, you know, in terms of your time and your labor to the practice of restructuring or revising a current program to value diversity. So actually bringing in to the center the value and meaning of diversity and being able to have programmatic conversations about what does that mean to every individual and why are some definitions proliferating more so than others and in which way is the department or program lacking in their understanding of diversity. Um, and so once we start, once you start getting those conversations taking place, then you start opening the doors for looking at deficiencies, possible deficiencies or just possible places to grow within your program that um, are maybe, you know, your weak link right now as far as um, diversity awareness. And, you know, we want to make sure that we understand that, um, you know, in our article, we mentioned um, that diversity is definitely one of those kind of standalone metatonymical words that um, tries to bring up the issues of race, but it doesn't necessarily go far enough. You know, some people are not ready to talk about race. They're not ready to talk about anti-racism right off the bat. So we get into those conversations and discussing diversity, and then we can talk a little bit more about what race means and how um, we're valuing the race of our students, um, our own racial histories within the United States, our complicities and some acts of bias. And it kind of opens up the door to be able to talk about these things. Um, and then, you know, it branches off into various areas. Like right now, we branched off into bringing in a new mission statement for our writing program that values the student's diversity. And then we branched into um, discussions of course learning outcomes and how we could also revise those to reflect more of a commitment to diversity. And so those are just a couple of suggestions of how you um, take what we studied and what we learned about, you know, some of the misgivings or the uh, misunderstandings about the role of race and diversity in writing programs, take some of our findings and, um, you know, try to put those within practice in your own institutions. My last question is on NCTE's position statement in support of ethnic studies initiatives in K-12 curricula. You were the lead author on this statement and you told me that this was one of the best experiences in your career because it was one of the first items you contributed to the Latinx caucus. I'm curious about the implementation of this curriculum in K through 12 settings and how this can be incorporated in secondary classes. Well, I think as far as like, uh, you know, the implementation of ethnic studies within the K through 12 curriculum and the way that that can be um further supported is we do have specific members that, um, you know, going back to the caucus that are working in this area, especially now to make concrete resources for K through 12 in terms of how to 
diversify the curriculum, especially if we're working within a common core tradition, um, you know, or common core uh, requirements in our state like how does it look to bring ethnic studies curriculum in so that happens at various levels um, so it can happen on an independent level can happen on a school district level um, and it can happen on a state level um, and so the, the I guess the one uh, big really important reference point that we have right now in terms of the effects and the benefits of having ethnic studies within K through 12 curriculum probably would be the 2008-2009 story about the implementation of a Mexican-American studies program in Tucson, Arizona, in the Tucson, Arizona Unified School District. And, um, and the reasons why, you know, studies came out about that particular program was because it was actually banned. And when the program was banned, you know, we had some so sociologists um, some social scientists try to go back and collect data about the student outcomes, the student progress, their grades, their assessment, their attendance, um, also their college going behavior. So we had, you know, some people going back committed to being able to revive that program um, after it was closed by the school board. Now with some really interesting results and that, that PDF I think is available. You know, you can Google it, the um, academic success measures of ethnic studies. It's written by Christine Sleeter and she's a sociologist. So in that particular report, it came out that students that were involved in the Mexican American studies program, they did achieve higher on their test scores, they did exhibit uh, higher rates of attendance, and they did exhibit um, higher uh, GPAs, and then they also exhibited um, a higher tendency to go on to college, and many of them actually did go on to college. Um, and as a matter of fact, it's interesting that you asked me this because just last uh, semester I was at UC San Diego and I ran into one of the students who was um, part of that Tucson Unified School District Mexican-American Studies program, and she's now in the Ethnic Studies PhD program at UCSD, you know, studying, you know, some things about um, African-American women, and her, her, her focus is very much Ethnic Studies, given credit to that particular program. And so, um, you know, the, the, the evidence of the benefits of Ethnic Studies uh, for all student populations, I believe, can be found there in terms of the cradle, but we can also see the struggles coming before. And as far as how it's moving, so if we think that happened, started happening around 2008, now we're at 2020, and we can see school district by school, school district wanting to implement an ethnic studies, at least a, an elective, but if not a requirement within the school curricula. Um, some whole states have taken this on. So California is actually considering a bill right now. So there's also, you know, there's challenges that come through with re agreeing on what needs to be in this curriculum. But there's pretty much, I, I, I believe, there's growing agreement about uh, the inclusion of ethnic studies curriculum in the classroom. Um, and so then just going back to the statement is at the very end of that statement, I'm very thankful that I was able to work with um, Dr. Cristina Cedillo and Dr. Alejandra Hidalgo who helped us. It was definitely a, a collaborative effort in bringing in resources that um, actually are the, in the end of that particular statement, there's, I think, at least two or three uh, pages worth of resources for how to integrate in the K-12 curriculum. Thank you, Aris, and thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.